I usually give about uh, between 20 and 30 major speeches a year. And uh, that pace was maintained during January and February of this year. But then in March came coronavirus, April, May, June, uh, I, not a single one. Many, many Zoom presentations, but not a single live audience speech. Now, when I step out onto the stage or up to the podium for a live audience speech, it's almost impossible to see individuals or even think individuals. Essentially, you are confronting a large amorphous audience and the speaking style and the oratory that is involved is specifically for a large audience. But when I welcome you to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, it's a totally different deal. It's not me looking out and thinking of thousands of people out there. No, I am speaking only to you. Now, obviously, there are a number of people, each on their own schedule, their own time, they're going to be listening, but I see only one happy warrior with a huge and humble heart. And I may not know your name, although I do know the names of many listeners already, but I do know enough about you to know that if you have listened more than once, if you've come back for more, then you are a happy warrior, because only happy warriors with huge and humble hearts are capable of absorbing some of the toughness that gets delivered on this show, because you'll remember Listeners to this show are not tennis balls floating down the gutter of life. Listeners to this show are not supine and lethargic lumps of passive protoplasm just waiting to be massaged with warm butter. No, listeners to this show are happy warriors with huge and humble hearts. Listeners to this show are eager to be actors on the stage of life, not merely to be acted upon. And so I do have a pretty good idea of who you are when I say, welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where your rabbi reveals how the world really works. That's right. And... One way that the world really works is that you do not do well by fighting last century's wars. You don't do well by trying to defeat the enemy of yesteryear who has long vanished. And we people, we all have a tendency to some extent to do that. We drive with our eyes only on the rearview mirror. And so it's always important and always valuable to recognize the true current perils. It's valuable to make sure that you are not confusing yesterday's threat with the real threat approaching on the horizon, the one that will already be here tomorrow, but the one that if you have any hope of defeating, you need to already recognize today. And so it falls to me, your 
dedicated and devoted rabbi to reveal for you the real pandemic that is truly threatening you now more than any other. Wherever you live, the true pandemic imperiling your life is the pandemic of socialism spreading like an out-of-control wildfire from one human heart to the next. Why, you might ask me, why can't you just go about your business and ignore it? For the same reason that if more and more families living in your neighborhood become litterers, you can't ignore it because if you do, you'll soon be living in a filthy slum. If you like your home and your neighborhood, you'd better try and end the popular practice of dropping trash on the streets. Similarly, imagine if more and more families in your neighborhood start divorcing with the dads moving out and going elsewhere. Why can't you just go about your business and ignore the pandemic of divorce? Well, because if you do, little by little, the children in those broken families are going to start showing the pathologies of being raised by single moms. Now, not every single one of them, of course, but enough to utterly change your neighborhood for the worse. There will be a rise in juvenile delinquency, and your children will be victimized. The local school will have to start devoting more and more resources to behavioral problems rather than to education, because there just aren't the resources of time and energy in most single-mom homes to take care of all the children's needs, as well as helping with homework. Inevitably, educational standards will decline. Eventually, juvenile delinquency will escalate into crime. And you'll be astonished when little Jimmy down the block, that cute little 11-year-old you remember so well, has morphed into a thuggish and intimidating 18-year-old with the start of an already impressive rap sheet. You won't like the kinds of young men who start frequenting your once beautiful and stable neighborhood as they hang around preying upon the fatherless girls with sad self-image problems. No, you can't really afford to ignore the spreading of destructive pathologies in your neighborhood, or in your city, or in your state, or yes, in your country. Under these circumstances of a spreading pandemic of socialism, what can you do? Well, let us start off by looking at the antidotes to socialism, the things you can and must focus on in your life in order to render yourself and your closest immune to socialism's seductive allure. We have to ask ourselves firstly, what is socialism? And second, to whom does it appear to chiefly appeal. You see, we all live in a world filled with abundant pleasures, delights, and wonders. The paradox is that without some form of self-restraint, overindulgence will destroy both individuals and groups. That's the paradox. However, God created us and put us in the world along with his book, which is really an operating manual for how humans can coexist, 
And one of the messages it contains is, of course, the message of self-restraint. It's perhaps best to take a glimpse into a mini-social system. Let's enjoy a thought experiment, shall we? A thought experiment that imagines a sort of large-scale Gilligan's Island adventure. You remember that old TV show? Used to play in prime time, by the way, not in Kitty's Hour. Fifty boys, high school seniors, get marooned on a remote desert island with 50 high school girls. And one of their teachers, who happens to be a wise person, who was to be their guide on this field trip that went very, very wrong. Turns out they are going to have to be there on the island and find a way to survive for three years before they are rescued. You can even stipulate a sort of cultural amnesia, whereby they remember nothing of their earlier lives and their old values. Nonetheless, on the very day that they are washed up onto the beach, wasting no time at all, the wise teacher will lay out a system of rules that they are going to sound, that are going to sound very much like those implicit in the Judeo-Christian biblical view. That teacher will inevitably sound a lot like a guy called Moses. Just listen to him now as we imagine the thought experiment, will you? <coughs> as the adult here, committed to you all still being alive and healthy when the Coast Guard discovers us and rescues us in three years' time, I have some rules for you. First, you need to all pair up and form lasting couples, boys and girls. I will conduct official marriage ceremonies. Without that, we would soon have social chaos that would doom us. I'm sure you can all understand. There will be unavoidable random coupling with inevitable babies born with no particular man taking responsibility for them. While a pregnant or nursing mother is unable to do a full day's work, and I'll be coming to that topic shortly, who would care for her and provide her with food? Shall we take a little from everyone working to sustain those who are not? How would that work? And would some of the men become predators, assembling harems with other men having no access to the girls? Quite possibly. Would the men fight? <laughs> I think so. Would some of the guys be indolent? That means lazy? Sure. No, there is no alternative. I'm sorry, but we won't survive as a hundred single boys and, and girls. Our only chance is to become 50 couples and eventually 50 families. What is more, here's the tough part, each couple will be assigned a piece of land. If you work it successfully, you will be comfortably fed. And if not, you won't. But if you choose not to work it, you have no claim at all on the food grown by any other couple. You may not steal, but you may trade. Any harm administered from one of you to another will be remedied by the power and the force of our group. The teacher, standing on a rock, overlooking his hundred students on the beach, continues. 
You may form voluntary associations for welfare and even insurance purposes, so that if any member of the collective suffers misfortune, say through fire or illness, his family's needs will be taken care of by the other members of that collective. Membership and involvement in such collectives is entirely voluntary, but anybody not a member of any such welfare organization has no claim on anyone else in the event of his misfortune. Others may choose to assist, but they are certainly not obliged to do so. Should we encounter hostiles on our island, every male will be expected to join our self-defense militia, while the women remain home to care for the children and the fields. We shall set up tribunals to adjudicate the inevitable disputes and squabbles that always arise when people live and interact together, even, even people of unimpeachable goodwill. We shall all agree to be bound by the rulings of those arbitration panels. So you see, as I noted earlier, any wise teacher, regardless of background, under these circumstances, will utter words very much like those I've just said. There's no alternative, you know. <laughs> Nothing else would work. Now, let's continue the thought experiment, shall we? Turns out that one of the boys is chafing under the rules and sees an opportunity to better himself by fomenting a revolution against the teacher and against those who back the teacher and the associated rules and norms. Well, by this time, in the normal scheme of things, some of the couples or families are doing significantly better than some of the others, and there may even be a few who are struggling for reasons of sloth or perhaps misfortune and are barely making it struggling along. Our revolutionary finds willing ears among those less inclined to self-sufficiency and perhaps among those whose natural natures tend towards the lazy and unmotivated. After all, even Karl Marx, about whom I'll tell you more later, never held a job in his entire life. Did you know that? Our revolutionary also chafes under the sexual sanctity rules and readily finds fellow travelers who have forgotten why they originally subscribed to those rules in the first place. Socialists resent rules derived either from the Bible or from the school of human experience that places limits, restrictions, and structure on human affairs. In exchange for power and prestige, they always promise the gullible all the advantages of prosperity and progress with none of the costs. Those, I am afraid, are always borne by someone opposing the revolution. The reason socialism has always seduced low-character people is that because it provides them the moral framework that legitimizes them trying to live off the work of other people. Hear that? Socialism attracts because it provides a moral framework that legitimizes you stealing everything of other people. It sanctimoniously sanitizes theft and is not a legitimate political doctrine, but is actually a sick pathology 
for diseased and larcenous egos. It is a parasite that emerges to prey on almost every successful society. But because it plagiarizes the language of piety and employs the language of religion, it appeals to many. And now, let me just pause to tell you of something else that is appealing to many. Uh, when I started my congregation in California years back, the only requirement, there was, there was no membership fee, it was everything based on free will offerings, but there was only one non-negotiable requirement, and that was that you attended a Torah class. And I gave those several nights a week, and uh, I taught for about 90 minutes at a time, which was a long, you know, that's a long lecture. But I started with the words in the beginning, God created, and I explained the seven words that make up the Hebrew first sentence of the Bible, Bereshit, bara Elohim, et hashamayim ve'et ha'aretz. And uh, I went from there to uh, the only other verse in the five books that also has seven words and 28 letters. And, uh, and then I explained what that means, and I went on to verse 2. And I treated the book seriously for adults. Uh, I treated it as what it is, God's instructional instruction manual for the safe operating of human society. And uh, I've never um, made that material available to happy warriors or anybody else before, but now I have. What I've done is I've created a course that literally takes us through verse by verse, from verse 1 of chapter 1 of Genesis, and moving onwards through all of the days of creation and onwards and beyond. The course is called Scrolling Through Scripture, and um, you would like to look a little bit more about it, please go to our website, and I know you think you know what I'm going to say, but you probably don't. Because this website is called wehappywarriors.com. That's right, wehappywarriors.com. And there you'll be able to read more about the program Scrolling Through Scripture. Do take a look at it and um, tell me what you think. Okay. Uh, I mean, a lot of the material I'm talking about with you now is made more comprehensible by an understanding of what our manufacturer actually had to say about the nature of these beings he created and why it is that socialism is indeed part of the picture. There was an 18th century French philosopher. Uh, I call him Henry de Saint-Simon, um, but I dare say that the correct pronunciation of his name sounds something like Henri, and the rest I won't even venture a shot at. But um, he coined, as far as I know, he coined the name socialism, and he actually described it, and we're talking about the 1700s now, he described it as the new Christianity, 
and like many early socialists, he envisioned its ideas as a tool for returning to primitive Christianity. Uh, There was a 19th century historian, Renan, who explicitly made the comparison. I was fascinated when I saw it. And here's what he wrote. If you want to get an idea of what the first Christian communities were like, take a look at a local branch of the International Working Man's Association. By the way, you probably don't need me to tell you that the International Working Man's Association is better known as the First International, and one of its members was a fellow called Karl Marx. So, in the early days, uh, many people thought that socialism was inseparable from religion. It was, and you know what? In a way, they were right. It was to become a religion. The original name of the Communist Party that Karl Marx would go on to head was the League of the Just. You hear that? Right? Before it became the Communist Party, they called it the League of the Just. And you want to know what its stated goal was? The, you're not going to believe this. It's true, though. The establishment of the kingdom of God on earth, based on the ideals of love of one's neighbor, equality, and justice. Well, I guess the word equality is a little bit of a giveaway. But there it is. The kingdom of God on earth was to be established on the basis of ideals of love of one's one's neighbor, equality, and justice. The same essential principles sum up the ideals of the religious left today, of course, which define religion in terms only of social justice. Of course, the end result of this process wipes everything from the blackboard, including God and the Bible, which become nothing more than props for socialistic preaching. And that is exactly what the religion of socialism looks like. Socialism opposes everything the Bible encourages. Faith in God is replaced by institutional atheism, financial independence of each man. And and here, let me just pause to... Uh, quote a little uh, a bible verse if i might uh, and every man will sit beneath his grapevine and beneath his fig tree and nobody will fear the lord because the lord of hosts has spoken that's from the book of micah chapter 4 verse 4 it doesn't say every man will sit under a grapevine and under a fig tree no it's under his own That's right, financial independence of every man. And in the socialist vision, that gets replaced by dependence upon the state. Traditional family based on an eternal male-female commitment is replaced by no rules and endless experimentation. Voluntary friendships and associations are distrusted and are replaced by relationships with arms of the state. No longer does society resemble the brain-like structure of countless interneural linkages, but all of a sudden it's replaced by a hub-and-spoke arrangement. Every citizen, isolated at the end of his own spoke, communicates for all things only with the state at the center of the wheel. 
Finally, socialism does encourage bodily health, but never as a holistic part of the entire human. But how do you combat this disease which attacks relentlessly against reasonably successful societies? Well, you pursue a happy and fulfilling life, and you encourage other like-minded people to do the same. After all, people happily engaged in increasing happiness by building their five Fs are seldom attracted to the basic dissatisfaction of socialism. Remember, socialism is always about revolutionary change, how we'll improve this and how we'll repair that. Socialism always implies a deep dissatisfaction with how things are, with pretty much everything the way it is. We can do better, we must do better, and if in doing so we break much of the functioning and the familiar, well, you can't make an omelette without breaking a few eggs, can you? Or as Vladimir Lenin put it, when you chop down a forest, splinters will fly. They promise us that by chopping down the forest, they'll be able to make us an even better forest. But as the famous, great, Bible-believing English writer Samuel Johnson wrote, How small of all that human hearts endure, that part which laws or kings can cause or cure by which Samuel Johnson meant that governments, i.e. laws and kings, can do almost nothing to give you greater happiness. Yet, as grim malcontents, they ignore everything that is good. There is so much, isn't there, that is beautiful and good, but socialists never mention it. They probably never even see it. Instead, my friends... They focus on curing all kinds of ills, capitalism, racism, sexism, poverty, war, etc. They're big on sentiments like hope and change, and making the world a better place, and so on. But the happy warrior, by contrast, that's you and me, is filled with a warm affection for the world and for life, And we are suffused with a deep sense of gratitude for all of life. And if, as Samuel Johnson says, happiness can never come from government grants, well, from where does it come? And you know the answer. A deep, abiding, warm upwelling of irrepressible happiness grows out of you growing your five F's. By focusing on the essentials and spurning the peripherals. Think of it this way. Let's imagine that, um, like me, your dancing resembles a drunk trying to stamp on cockroaches. The fact is you can still have a very happy and fulfilling life. If you cannot drive cook or shop, no worries. You can still have a happy and fulfilling life because Uber and DoorDash and Amazon will take care of you. If you don't even know what a government grant is and you have never met a community activist or a community organizer, 
you can still have a happy and fulfilling life. But, as you already know, you regular listeners, there are five areas of life which every single person absolutely needs to master in order to have a happy and fulfilling life. If you are deficient in any one of these five areas, you are doomed to a lesser life than you could otherwise have enjoyed. No online services exist that can make good on failure in any of these five areas. There is no choice. If you are hoping to live happily and fulfillingly, you need these five areas to be in good shape. So crucial is it for successful living that almost all my coaching for happy warriors revolves around what I call the 5F Renewal Project. In fact, I think the very definition of happy warriors are those who are constantly focused on fixing their five Fs. That's why we are called happy warriors, because little produces happiness like forging ahead in these five areas. And since it is not easy, in fact, it's a fight, we are happy warriors. So what are these five Fs? Before I tell you, I must emphasize that we are all trained to think in terms of lists, checklists, top 10 lists, lists of favorites, lists of the worst movies, songs, and shows, and they all go from, say, 1 to 10, with 10 being the biggest or the best or the worst. You see, with a list you know, you're either going in ascending or descending order. So if I gave you the five Fs in a list, you would automatically find yourself wondering if the most important is the first one I mentioned, number one, or maybe the most important is number five, the one I'm going to be building up to, arriving finally after the first four at the climax. So which is it? How should I list them? Well, I want you to try and lose the list concept. Oh, look, I grant it's very useful in many situations. I would absolutely never start a takeoff roll on the little single-engine Cessna I used to fly without meticulously going through my pre-flight checklist. And the only time I nearly pulled away from a dock in Mill Bay, British Columbia, without disconnecting our big fat yellow shore power cable was when I dismissed my pre-departure checklist. Disaster of one kind or another would have ensued had a dock walker passing by not kindly called out in urgent alarm. And embarrassingly, <laughs> I pulled back into the slip, tied up the boat, and jumped off to disconnect the, the shore power cable. But that was because I did not watch and follow through my checklist. Oh yes, lists have their uses. And there is a certain lady... I know her well, and she does her market shopping very efficiently because she arranges the items she needs in a list arranged in order of how the store is laid out. Now, she never used to mind spending a little longer in a store because she'd always run into someone she knew or she'd make new acquaintances and even friends from casual conversations. But at the present, with the market insisting on these ridiculous face masks, she finds shopping a tiresome ordeal, and she wants it done as quickly and as efficiently as possible. Hence, her lists with items near the door at the top of the list, 
and with her cunningly arranged list, she never has to walk any of the shopping aisles more than once. See, lists imply a sequence. But the five Fs are not in a list. They are in a circle. And so at this point, I'd like you to pause the program while you go and get a piece of paper and a compass. And uh, if you don't have a compass, you can use a, a can of baked beans and you'll just trace a circle around the base of the can of baked beans that you place on your piece of paper. All right, I'm assuming you're back now with paper and pencil, sharp pencil and a compass and um, make yourself a nice smooth circle. Now I want you to place five equidistant points around the circumference of your circle and label them F1 through F5. By the way, to do it really accurately and neatly, the angular displacement between each of those five points is 72 degrees. So if you had a protractor and you put a point on the circle and you drew a line from the center to that point and then you used your protractor to go 72 degrees in either direction and you drew another line with a point at the circumference and you did that again, you'd end up with your five equidistant points around the circle. By the way, uh, it can be done in a very elegant and, uh, and to me, very pleasing way um, in about five steps using only a compass. All right? It's, um, uh, it, it, it's a very nice sequence of, of steps that uh, you can take to end up with exactly five points on the circumference of your circle, all the same distance from one another. <clears throat> um, I mean, I suppose you could just do it by iron very approximately, you know, better than nothing. So um, do, do that if you like. <clears throat> but um, as I was saying, 360 degrees in a circle, five equidistant points, five divides exactly into 360, and the answer is 72. That's why it's 72 degrees between each point. <clears throat> At any rate. Now, remember you got your five points labeled F1 through F5. Now, draw a straight line from F1 to F3. And another straight line from F1 to F4. I hope you use a little ruler. Go ahead and now draw a straight line from F2 to uh, F4. And then another one, finally, from F2 to F5. Oh, one more. No, here, do one more from F3 to F5. You've now got uh, five lines that, together with the curved segments of the circumference, will now connect every single one of the F5s to every one of the other four. <clears throat> now, if you look at what you've got, particularly if you put your F1 at the top of the circle, what you should now be looking at is something that is a, uh, a five-pointed star in a circle. And at this point, I want to implore you to banish any superstitious thoughts from your mind. Happy warriors are not subject to superstition, okay? We're just not. Uh, I, quote, <clears throat> I quote Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 10. There shall not be found among you anyone that makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, or that uses superstition. That's right. 
I say this because the picture of a pentagram in a circle, or a pentacle as it's sometimes called, um, has really no spiritual significance at all. It doesn't mean anything religious. It has no occultish significance in, in the real sense of the word. It is neither good nor bad. It's a drawing, that's all. And in ancient Jewish wisdom, it's sometimes seen as a graphical depiction of an integrated person, head up top, two arms and two legs, all connected to one another, just as you drew it. The idea is of our heads connected to our tools of creativity, right? Our arms and legs, our hands and feet. Yes, movement represented by our legs can be creative too. Just think of the important export businesses that established the great harbors of the world. Making things and moving them from us towards others and from others towards us. Well, that's what we do. And all is dictated and directed by the head. Now, going back to your drawing, we're going to add the five F's that are essential to your happiness and fulfillment. They are your friendships, your finances, your faith, your fitness, and your family. Which one goes where? Good question, or is it? Well, as you now obviously realize, it makes absolutely no difference. Each is connected to the other four, so put them down at any of the points you labeled F1 through F5. Put each one down wherever you like. None is more important than any other, and none is less important either. That's the idea of a circle as opposed to a list. So now go ahead and draw this neatly and attractively, paste it up on your bathroom mirror so you can gaze at it every morning while you brush your teeth. So whether you can dance, drive, cook, garden, or play tennis is really of very little importance let's say, negligible importance. But being able to make money is of crucial importance to your life. Making money might come about because you have fashioned a productive partnership, which might be a marriage or a purely business relationship. It is possible that as a woman, you create a cocoon of harmony, security, and tranquility. In other words, a home in which your husband finds the love and the peace, and the admiration, which propel him to unanticipated heights of success. Yes, it is true that marriage is the main portal to prosperity. Poverty is not a racial problem in America. It is a problem of singleness. Single men and single mothers raising children who will never know their fathers, and who thereby will be condemned to poverty. It is true that socialistic, leftward attempts to destroy marriage and family life and thereby create a growing class of citizens dependent upon government have unfortunately worked even better on black populations than on white. It is an unarguable fact that up until the 1950s, Listen to this. Over 80% of black children were born into a family of married parents. Right? Remember I say how I always say that life changed in America around about 1962. Well, one of the things that changed is that up till that point, 
over 80% of black children were born into a family of a mother and a father married to each other. By the 2000s, right? My goodness, 40 years later, that number had shrunk to less than a quarter of those children. Now, I have to tell you, right? Did you hear that? Less than a quarter of black children are born to a woman married to her husband, the father of the child. To have as many as three quarters of all children born to unmarried women is quite unprecedented for any large subpopulation of any durable culture in the entire history of the world. It turns out that absence of a father is a reliable predictor of subsequent absence from the workforce underperformance academically, and criminal involvement. That this is irrespective of skin color, we know beyond shadow of a doubt by comparing the rates and effects of illegitimacy in inner-city black populations in America with those same effects in predominantly white Appalachia and in the predominantly white underclass in the United Kingdom. It's not color. It's not race. Marriage is one of the most important and reliable avenues out of poverty for people of every background and every ethnicity. And uh, a lot of this idea that what we emphasize is the goodness of people, that what we emphasize is the behavior of people, is directly from the Bible, which is absolutely colorblind. But it's not blind to behavior. And that's what I cover among so many other areas in my new course, Scrolling Through Scripture, which you will find by going to my special website, wehappywarriors.com. There it is, right? You're a happy warrior. I'm a happy warrior. Well, that's where we get together. Wehappywarriors.com. And uh, look for a program called Scrolling Through Scripture. And uh, it's not for everybody, but it is for those with a deep conviction that the Bible is God's general theory for the totality of all human existence, that the Bible is God's message to mankind. And if that's something that resonates in your soul, then you will want to know a little of the deeper secrets that are embedded within the original Hebrew language, within the Lord's language of the Hebrew Bible. So go to wehappywarriors.com if you're interested and read more about my program, Scrolling Through Scriptures. I started teaching it at my congregation years ago in California, and I have. it was always to a closed private group, and now it is for any happy warrior. I want to emphasize for you that the average loss of wages and the general decline in the standard of living in America was not because we stopped investing in people or because we lost factory jobs to a global economy. 
Those were lines put out by government bureaucrats eager to find politically acceptable scapegoats. The United States Census Bureau actually provides the true answer if one but wants it. Female-headed households, which, by the way, is a euphemism for a single mother living with her children, who may all be fathered by different men. Yeah, female-headed households numbered only about 2.5 million in 1960. Now, 2.5 million is a lot, right? But you figure out we're a big country, and only 2.5 million female-headed households. By 2000, the number of those households was over 10 million. That's a 400% increase in those 40 years. Now, here's the important part. The poverty rate for normal families, excuse me, does it horrify you that I use the word normal? I didn't say average. I said normal. And average and normal are by no means the same thing. But uh, but let me let me just tell the truth. Regardless, the poverty rate for normal traditional families was under ten percent. Fewer than ten percent of marriages of families headed by a married father and mother. Fewer than ten percent of them fell below the poverty line. Do you know what, want to know what the poverty rate for female-headed households is? Close to 60%. That's quite a difference. Think about that. No-fault divorce, and I've spoken about that in an earlier program, no-fault divorce became the law and increasingly common in the United States and around the world during the last third of the 20th century. Not surprisingly, the divorce rate climbed steadily right? Do you remember? It climbed steadily through the 60s, and the median age for first marriage for men went from 22 years old in 1970 to 25 in 1985. It's continued climbing. Family breakup or non-formation in the first place is the key reason for why poverty rates are not falling. And a key reason why income inequality has increased. But of course, the culture, unwilling to concede the critical importance of traditional marriage, must find other reasons for poverty, right? Racism, anybody? Of course, right? Does anyone seriously believe that a child raised in an intact, normal family, raised to believe in ambition, hard work, and traditional values? Do you really not believe that such a child will do better economically than a child raised in today's counterculture? And you don't really believe, do you, that government can actually level the playing field for those two very different children, do you? I mean, really? You see, <clears throat> the erosion of Bible-based values eventually erodes economic success too. To quote Jewish demographer Ben Wattenberg, he was a friend of mine, he died about uh, 2015, and one of the things he wrote was, when predatory teenagers kill foreign tourists in Florida and harm the tourist industry, 
or when businessmen vacate the inner city because they don't like being shot at, or that the cost of policing courts, prisons during a high crime era raise taxes and diminish after-tax income, isn't it obvious that health care costs much more because of corrosive social conditions like drug abuse, teenage pregnancy, injury by crimes of violence, crack babies, sexually transmitted diseases, alcohol abuse, and smoking. Some medical economists have calculated that about half of our country's total health bill comes from self-destructive aberrant behavior. I suppose in many ways one could say that society's bills are being paid by society's hard-working traditional families. And every year, there's fewer of those and more of the others. This merely affirms what you'll see by consulting your 5F pentagram diagram. Finance is connected to family directly by a line that's either curved or straight, doesn't matter. It's close to impossible to make money effectively if you are not part of a functional, healthy family. And i got to tell you, it's just as true that it is difficult to maintain a healthy, functional family without making money. Please note, I do not say without having money. Winning money in a lottery does not help your family very much or for very long. The tragic stories that surround lottery winners do enough to establish this fact. It is often said that money cannot buy happiness, and that's largely true. Merely getting money is unlikely to bring you happiness, but making it or earning it contributes greatly to your happiness. And that's because deep down, deep in your soul, you know that every earned dollar is a certificate of good performance, a warranty that you did something that another human being, another one of God's children valued enough to pay you. See, being unable to ballroom dance will never prove to be a major detriment to your happiness. But failing to be part of a family or failing to master your money are almost insurmountable handicaps. A third indispensable area of life mastery is your fitness. Remember that ancient Jewish wisdom take on the five-pointed star? Head, arms, and legs are what is represented. The entirety of the body and its connection to the head. I hardly need take time to emphasize that which is widely known and which is so easily confirmed by elementary research. Namely, that patience with a strong network of family and friends, connectivity with lots of other people, they maintain their health and, more importantly, also regain it far more than those without such a network of connection. And it's to a startling degree of statistical correlation. It's also well known that people with a positive net worth are also healthier than those without. What is far less known is that people who take care of themselves and their physical fitness also tend to be more diligent and disciplined about their finances as well. Yes, the five Fs are indeed 
all interconnected. Why is faith also a part of this pattern, you might ask? You might think that the connection between faith and finance is the hardest to establish. After all, haven't we all been taught that God and money are entirely separate and disconnected zones? Well, the easiest way to show that this is not true is by reminding you that no capital market has ever emerged indigenously in a non-Christian society, or by reminding you that no atheistic society has ever developed a durable and successful economy. By the way, I should mention that China is no exception to this rule. While China is undoubtedly governed by a pretty tyrannical socialistic regime, the Chinese Communist Party has notably failed in turning its population into one and a quarter billion secular socialists. In fact, there are probably more than a hundred million Christians in China, and Christianity is classified even by their own government as China's fastest growing religion. According to the British Economist, there are probably now more Christians in China than there are members of the Chinese Communist Party. According to the Wall Street Journal, university religious studies departments have been ordered by the Communist Party's propaganda department to re-emphasize atheism. Some local governments are threatening rural Christians with fines and jail if they attend unauthorized prayer meetings. And with all that, Bible-believing Christianity continues to grow in China. Yet Beijing finds itself in a tough position. And if anything slows or impedes and perhaps halts the growth of the world's second biggest economy, it'll be because Xi Jinping, one of China's most powerful leaders ever, will not be able to resist bringing more and more of China's private sector business under the Chinese Communist Party and he'll attempt more repression of Christianity. He clearly understands that Judeo-Christian religious principles are what sustain the free and growing economy. When I visited Taiwan to speak for the business community there, it was hard to ignore that almost all the very top of Taiwan's business pyramid structure the most known names in construction, finance, telecommunications, and other major international industries, every one of them were all active in the Christian church in Taiwan. Yet, you know what, even now, Xi Jinping is nationalizing more and more private enterprises, many even being incorporated in China's Belt and Road Initiative. I've, I've spoken about that before in an earlier show. It's their initiative that's designed to bring more countries in Africa and Asia into the Chinese orbit, under the Chinese umbrella. If you want to kill capitalism, you're going to have to kill Christianity, as well as its Jewish mother. One could call that a saying of Chairman Xi, and he's not wrong. In studying the connection between faith and finance— it's also impossible to ignore the disproportionate success with money enjoyed by the Jewish people as a whole. It becomes especially significant when we realize 
that none of the popular explanations for Jewish financial achievement hold any water. No, it's got nothing to do with intelligence. It's entirely possible to be too smart for your own good, just as your mother told you. And it has nothing to do with racial theories of a Jewish money gene. When all is said and done, as I point out in my book, Thou Shall Prosper, The Ten Commandments for Making Money, Jewish success in business comes chiefly from Jewish familiarity with and faith in God's message to mankind, the Torah, Scripture. This helps to explain one of the fascinating mysteries of economic history. I'm sure that you are probably familiar with how, starting in the 1500s, the center of world economic activity shifted away from southern Europe where it had been for centuries. Countries like Portugal, Italy, Greece, and Spain, which had enjoyed financial prosperity and indeed economic world dominance, suddenly began to subside until their fiscal influence utterly vanished. And it's still true. Up until this very day, in the European economic community, these countries are rather disrespectfully described as the pigs' countries, Portugal, Italy, Greece, and Spain, and are regular recipients of large subsidies and grants, mostly from Germany, in order to get through each fiscal year without a crisis. Why did these countries inexplicably suffer declining economies while the more northern regions of Europe began to thrive? There are a number of foolish and easily discredited attempts at explanations. For instance, this period corresponded to the opening up of the Americas, as if travel to North, Central or South America was so much easier from the ports of London, Hamburg and Amsterdam than from the harbours of Genoa, Marseille or Lisbon. Nonsense. The economics and history departments of universities still grapple with the strange mystery of why Frankfurt and Hamburg, Germany's big ports, supplanted Livorno and Venice in Italy, and why Amsterdam and London replaced Madrid and Lisbon in being the new centers of financial power. Remember you heard it first here on the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, will you? The answer is both simple and also politically incorrect, Be simply because it is self-evident. Upon hearing it, you won't feel a need to inquire as to which authorities agree with it. No, you'll hit your head and say, hey, this is so obvious. How come those dummies with letters after their names didn't realize it? They didn't realize it because of cognitive dissonance. That means that certain facts are so painful that even intelligent minds reject them rather than endure the pain that accepting them would involve. In the light of their political correct theories, they simply could not countenance the possibility that world economies rise and fall and are shaped by Jews and God's word, the Bible. They loathed, and they still loathe, the unthinkable truth that armies and politics, the rise and fall of nations, 
and the great rivers of trade all result from the activities of a few million people with whom God entrusted his word three millennia earlier. The blindingly obvious but politically incorrect answer to why the centers of economic creativity shifted away from those countries of southern Europe just at that time is that just at that time, vast Jewish communities that had been there for centuries were expelled with little more than the clothing they wore and what few possessions they could carry with them into exile. Let's look at some of these facts. Jews were driven from Sicily in 1492, out of Naples in 1540, from Genoa and Venice in 1550. The great German economist, not Jewish, his name was Werner Sombart. I, I really like reading him. Um, he, uh, just for your information, he died during World War II. Uh, Werner Sombart reports that when the Senate of Venice decided to expel the Jews in 1550, the Christian merchants of the city protested and declared that it would mean their financial ruin and that they might as well leave Venice along with the Jewish exiles. You know what? They turned out to be exactly right. They were ruined, as was their city. Jews were expelled from Spain in 1492 and from Portugal in 1495. Fascinatingly, in those days, when cities were often more important than countries and states, certain cities became Jewish refuges, and not surprisingly, they prospered. Almost alone among Italian cities, Livorno, on Italy's western coast, prospered in the 16th century because alone Livorno offered haven to Jews who had fled the Spanish peninsula. While many of the displaced Jews made their way to Livorno, where the city's great synagogue, by the way, was opened in 1603, and then destroyed by the Nazis during World War II. Imagine it stood from 1603 until World War II, when the Nazis destroyed it. There's a new synagogue, by the way, in Livorno, which you can see, and it was built in the 1950s upon the very site of the old 400-year-old synagogue that had stood there previously. It's, you know, it's a modern structure, and I don't find it particularly attractive. In Germany... Frankfurt and Hamburg both admitted Jews who fled Spain and Portugal, and, not surprisingly, those two cities began to experience unprecedented success as financial centers, even while cities that banned the entry of Jews, such as Cologne, Strasbourg, Nuremberg, went into swift decline. Munich's rise as the tremendously important commercial center it still is today, that dates back to the 1700s, when Jews were finally readmitted to that part of Bavaria. And I'm telling you all of this, remember, because I want to drive home for you, beyond any shadow of a doubt in your soul, that money, finance, and faith are deeply interconnected. So I'll go on. I want to let me jump to the late 16th century when Jews were expelled from England. So 
1290 it was, Jews thrown out of England. England languished financially until the middle 1600s. And it was uh, around about the time of the English uh, Civil War when a Dutch rabbi, an amazing guy named Menashe ben Israel, traveled to London and interceded with Cromwell himself. Cromwell, of course, was a Bible-believing religious Christian, and Cromwell agreed on the pleading of Menashe ben Israel to readmit the Jews to England. This he did, and not surprisingly, the explosion of capitalism there ran parallel to the influx of Jewish immigrants. All this led to the accumulation of capital and the availability of credit, which laid the foundation for the Industrial Revolution in the early 1700s in that country, in England. In Holland, towards the end of the 1500s, a sudden and tremendous economic boom began, corresponding to the arrival of large numbers of Portuguese and Spanish Jews, who um, were welcomed and who quickly established themselves and made Amsterdam an important center of world commerce. I guess I should mention, as I describe all this to you, that during the Eighty Years' War of Spain against Holland and England, that ran from 1568 to 1648, 80 years, many former Spanish Jews that were now established in Holland obtained what were called letters of mark from Holland and England from those governments, which allowed them to become privateers. And privateers are essentially licensed pirates, right? And they plundered the rich Spanish sailing galleons returning from the Caribbean with gold that they'd taken from Central America. And these um, Jews these Dutch Jews who'd originally come from Holland and from uh, Spain and Portugal, these Dutch Jews now shared their booty with the Dutch and English governments. That was the deal that was worked out in those letters of Mark, permitting them to become privateers. Even the chief rabbi of Amsterdam, uh, Rabbi Palash, spent half the year on his beautiful pirate ship working in the Caribbean. I mentioned this Jewish pirate thing because, well, it's always in the back of my mind, just in case this rabbi thing doesn't work out for me. I want to stress that the Jews invigorated commercial enterprise through both material and spiritual contributions, which is to say that not only did they energize commerce and stimulate capital accumulation through their actions, but they also provided the spiritual underpinning of capitalism by constantly demonstrating and proclaiming the dignity and morality of business. Although it's hard to believe, as recently as 1992 at the Democratic National Convention at which they nominated Bill Clinton for President of the United States, the Democratic Party platform carried the words, we honor business as a noble endeavor. Governments do not raise children, people do. The simplest and most direct way to restore order in our cities is to put more police on the streets. I mean, shall I read that to you again? I mean, hard to believe. Bill Clinton's nomination, the Democratic Convention that year, 
And they say we honor business as a noble endeavor. Governments don't raise children. People do. The simplest and most direct way to restore order in our cities is to put more police on the streets. Could you imagine the Democratic Party doing that now? (laughs) Of course not, right? That's how quickly things are in decline. There's no question about it. Things have certainly deteriorated very seriously in America. It began in 1962, approximately, and it hasn't yet ended. Not one little bit. Yeah, uh, the connection between faith and finance is too strong to ignore. And uh, talking of finance, have you ever heard the myth about a pot of gold being buried at the end of the rainbow? And um, did you know that the rainbow is the result of interaction between light and water? And did you know that both light and water both serve as a metaphor for knowledge, as in I thirst for knowledge or I see the light? And did you know that the word light appears apparently redundantly five times in the first day of creation at the beginning of Genesis in the Bible? And did you know that in the second day of creation, the word water appears seemingly unnecessarily five times? And do you know the significance of the number five and why a rainbow should be hinted at during those first two days? What's that all about? Well, not only is it interesting, but it's also significant and relevant to your life. And that's why I teach it in my new course called Scrolling Through Scripture. Um, it's, a, uh, it's an exciting program. I'm loving doing it, and I'm loving the reaction of people who are going through it with me. And uh, I think you'll probably at least like to know more about it. And if you want to do that, go to the special website, which is wehappywarriors.com. That's right, wehappywarriors.com. And look for the program, Scrolling Through Scripture. Well, not only is the connection between faith and finance um, unarguable, but the connection between faith and family is almost too well documented Uh, to even comment on. Suffice it to say that it is well established that marriages are notably more durable and more prevalent in communities of faith. That sex between a man and a woman functions best in a spirit of sanctity is obvious to any woman who has lamentably experienced the alternative kind, as well as to any man aware of the ultimately empty and largely unsatisfying sinking surrender to sensational excess. Forming a family is a fundamental necessity of human beings, even if they have never been taught this and don't know it. And having formed a family, a man needs constantly to be working on sculpting it. Too often a man assumes that by working hard and providing for his wife and children, he is doing all he needs to do. This 
is a dangerous illusion. If he is not constantly working on his family's dynamics, helping his wife shape and practice her priorities, which are also his, and ensuring that he is worthy of her need to respect her man, if he is not working on building relationships with each of his children, making sure he is helping to actively shape their values, he will suffer grievous disappointments. Any man who is not each day making himself better is becoming worse. Stagnation is not an option for living organisms. We are either becoming more alive or less alive. We're either growing or dying. Our businesses are either developing and expanding or they're shrinking. My children are either becoming more in sync with my values or they are drifting away. Earning a living is only the start of the day's work for a husband and a father who is also a happy warrior. With all this, I hope it becomes abundantly clear that while you can live a delightful life without knowing how to lay bricks, write poetry, or groom a poodle, you really do need to be part of a functioning family. You really do need to care for your health. You really do need to make money. You really do need to nurture friendships. And the way we're created, yes, we actually do need faith, just as surely as we need oxygen and water. There should be no further problems, right? Now we all know what to do. Let's go out and do it. You know your five Fs. Go forth and fix them. End a story. Not so quickly, Louise. We are not only surrounded by cultural forces that try to combat our 5F priorities, but we're also surrounded by the people those cultural forces have formed, and they want us with them. They make it hard to oppose them. They even try to penalize those who oppose them. A problem is, that we all know how much easier it is to practice an admirable habit when we live among many others doing the same thing, right? And we also know how hard it is to maintain a certain practice if others around you have mainly abandoned it. We all know that divorce is made far more likely when a married couple's social circle is mostly divorced people. If you are a young man between 13 and 23, you know how hard it is to keep focused on doing what you know you ought to be doing and resisting what you know you should be resisting if you don't have a group of like-minded friends. If all your friends are mostly behaving self-destructively, your chances of making it are way, way down. If you have sat down to reflect upon how much better your life would be if you had devoted the last 10 years to doing only the things that improved your finances, your friendships, your faith, your family, and your fitness, and had wasted no time at all on other things. It's not too late to start that discipline now. Become a happy warrior and do only things that improve your five Fs. Simple, right? No, not at all simple because you are in a society of which many people not only don't agree with you, they don't want you doing those things either. But wait, why would they care? 
Surely most people believe in live and let live, right? You go your way and they'll go theirs. The trouble is, that's not how religious theocracies work. When Islam invaded the Iberian Peninsula, that's Spain and Portugal, Uncle Fred, in the early years of the 8th century, they didn't say no to the Catholic priests, hey, just live and let live, everything's fine. You Catholics pray to your God, we'll pray to ours, to Allah. No, they massacred all those Catholic priests. They tore the crosses down off the churches and the cathedrals, and they turned them into mosques. And communism, socialism, progressivism, leftism, all the same things, varying only in degree. Those are not political doctrines. They are a religion. It is an entire belief system. That's right. Socialism is not an economic system alone. It's a belief system as well. And like the Muslims in the year 711, they don't believe in live and let live. When they took over in Russia in the Russian Revolution in 1917, they didn't allow the Russian church to live and let live. No opposing faiths are allowed. Being Jewish or Christian was an opposing belief and had to be suppressed. Listen to how people at the time saw Marxism. In many ways, Marxism has become a quasi-religion with its slogans, symbols, red banners, hymns, party fellowship, apostles, martyrs, Bible, and definitive truth. Marx had all the self-assurance of a prophet who had talked to God. He was a poet, prophet, and moralist, speaking as a philosopher and economist. His doctrine is not to be tested against mere facts, but to be received as ethical religious truth. Marx was to lead the chosen people out of slavery to the new Jerusalem. Becoming a Marxist or a communist is like falling in love an essentially emotional commitment. A guidebook for young people was published in 1935 entitled Teachings of Marx for Girls and Boys. It was authored by a Protestant minister called William Montgomery Brown, and it carried pictures on the cover of Marx's greatest pupils, Lenin and Stalin. 1935 that was. By pursuing your interests and growing your five F's, you are committing heresy. Any true believers around you, and I'm afraid they may even be in your extended family or among associates, they won't regard you as possessing different values. They will regard you, however, as possessing evil values. And as we all know, religion commands you to get rid of evil. Deuteronomy 17.17 17 says explicitly, And you shall purge the evil from among you. Socialists around you will challengingly ask you if you think you are better than they are, when you never even hinted at such a thought. But they too are driven by the idea of the need to purge the evil. And the trouble is that your values, elevating faith and family, finances and friendships and fitness, those values are evil to the socialist. And he knows that he is dedicated to purging the evil. 
Let me tell you just a little bit about Karl Marx, since he does play a bit part in the story of socialism. Karl Heinrich Marx was born in 1818 in Trier, the oldest city in Germany, in a comfortable middle-class, well-to-do Jewish family. He lived years of his adult life in desperate poverty, despite his relatively well-to-do family. He exalted capitalism's technology and material advances, yet he damned the capitalist society. He felt deeply for the working man, he claimed, but he never held a steady job or even ever visited a factory during his entire adult life. Marx used to scream anti-Semitic epithets at his opponents, yet he was Jewish from both sides of his family. In an essay published in 1843, okay, he was born in 1818, as I said, uh, in 1843 he wrote on the Jewish expression, uh, that was the name of the, uh, the essay, and in it he, was, uh, he expressed such anti-Jewish vindictive sentiments. Um, he writes, what is the worldly cult of the Jew? What is his worldly God? Money. Money is the jealous God of Israel, before whom no other money degrades all the gods of mankind and converts them into commodities. It doesn't all make sense, but this is what he wrote. Um, what is contained abstractly in the Jewish religion? Contempt for theory, for art, for history. This is a guy who never knew anything about the Jewish religion, of course. Marx's racial slander never let up. He never retracted his 1843 defamation of the Jews. On the contrary, he harbored a lifelong hostility towards us. His letters are replete with anti-Semitic remarks, caricatures, and crude epithets. Levi's Jewish knows. They are usurers. He's a Jew boy, and worse that I don't even want to pronounce. Marx's hatred of Jews, which neither time nor experience ever eradicated from his soul, continued throughout his whole life. Many have tried complicated explanations for his Jew hatred, but it's not hard. Like many American and European elitists and intellectuals of Jewish ancestry, Marx had long abandoned the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and replaced his God's values with the values of socialism. Once he was a socialist, he had to hate Judaism as the nurturing mother of capitalism. Now, it is very important to note that while socialism is a belief system, a religion in fact, capitalism is not. Capitalism is no more than a system of producing and acquiring the necessities of life based on freedom, not equality, as society's guiding principle for the struggle for sustenance. Let me explain. Would you not agree with me when I say that the topic that dominates many of the waking hours of practically every human being is making a living? The daunting task of extracting a living and more from an often reluctant earth is surely the chief preoccupation of most people by far. Now, 
this used to mean, and in many parts of the world for many people it still does, it means subsistence farming. It means working 24-7, growing your own food, making your own clothing, and somehow growing or making the means of sustaining life. Because it sounds so primal, we elevate it with words like career. And many people, especially those who shape ideas and the thought generators of society, the rulers and the elites, are way past a struggle merely to sustain life. For them, the struggle is about power and prestige, along with the luxuries that accompany those positions. And the quest for luxury is no more than an old, old human desire to escape the harsh realities of nature. Nature is either often too hot or too cold. Air conditioning and fine clothing with central heating are luxuries. We consider them necessities, of course, but nobody, especially not our grandparents, can plausibly argue that they are really necessities. Jostling with lots of other travelers is painful or at least smelly, so private cars or taxis instead of buses and trains, well, that's a luxury as well, as is flying private or charter airplanes. But all this, whether at the bread and water end of the expensive clothing end, <clears throat> whether you're at one end or the other, the low end or the high end, it's always about participating in the economic system, the only alternative to subsistence farming. In other words, where you grow or make everything for yourself. The only other way is to participate in an economy. And it starts right off at the beginning. Do we work the land owned in common? or do we each own our own piece of land? That question is resolved differently if we're all being honest and consistent to our beliefs by Bible believers and by atheists. Atheists believing that we are on this planet as the result of a very lengthy process of unaided materialistic evolution that transformed primitive protoplasm into plumbers and proctologists well, he's got to believe that we are qualitatively no more than very smart and developed primates. As a matter of fact, to emphasize this crucial underpinning of secular socialism, in the 1990s, Copenhagen Zoo in Denmark added a new cage to their primate wing, and they installed Henrik Lehmann and Marlene Bortov, a pair of Homo sapiens, in their cage in the primate section next to the gorillas and the orangutans. I don't know how many tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of young Europeans were radicalized into socialism by that compelling vision of a couple living in a cage among the monkeys and the statement that people are basically nothing but smart gorillas. Thus, just as animals do not own land or anything else, neither should this branch of the animal kingdom own things. The land is owned by the zoo or by the farm, in other words, by the party or by the state. And just as no cow would ever say to the farmer, if cows could speak, hey, farmer, I think you're taking too much milk from us. From now on, let's cap the amount of milk you may take at, say, 45%. Because if it did... The farmer would say back, Hey, you dumb animal, 
You're only here because of me. I feed you, and when you're sick, I medicate you. I am there. I am there when your cough is born, and I'll be there to haul your carcass away when you die. Everything you produce is mine. Well, think about it. That, of course, with slight language variation, is exactly what the socialist government says to its citizens, from each according to his ability. There is no cap to what we can tax you. We feed you and we house you. We pay for your medicine and we educate your children. And when you're too old to work, we'll still feed you. You owe us everything. But to the Bible believers... People are an utterly unique species on the planet, alone touched by the finger of God and endowed with this amazingly powerful thing called a soul. And God gave this creation of his a special book to serve as a comprehensive depiction of reality, a sort of manufacturer's manual called the Bible for how to live on this earth. In this book, we are taught the important principles of ownership and of the correct use of a marvelous divine gift called money, a spiritual and abstract form of proof that one person served another child of God. This system, plus capitalism, merely a description of economic interaction based on freedom, Well, together, Judeo-Christian Bible belief plus capitalism equals an avenue to prosperity. Hear it well. Capitalism is not a belief system. The belief system that underpins capitalism is Bible-based Judeo-Christian faith. However, secular socialism is a belief system and seeks actively to extirpate all other opposing and competing belief systems and faiths, such as Bible-based Judeo-Christian thinking. You see, the heart of successful living, as presented by the great manufacturer himself, is taking care of your five Fs, your faith, your family, your friendships, your finances, and your fitness. Naturally, socialism has to oppose exactly those strategies by means of which you are able to live successfully and, above all, independently of the state. Socialism regards Judeo-Christian faith as the mortal enemy. It does everything to undermine family by eroding the distinctions between man and woman, whose essential differences are precisely what makes the creation of family possible. And it also undermines parent-child connection by replacing parents with departments of health and human services and by public schools, which... By the way, I prefer calling by their more accurately descriptive name, Government Indoctrination Camp, or GIC, and by the lunch and breakfast programs, also designed to drive a wedge between children and parents. Socialism furthermore seeks to undermine friendships by suspicion of all free association organizations or clubs and making the state the agency of intermediation between citizens. These take the form of bureaucratic hearings and tribunals or other extrajudicial procedures that interpose government into as many interpersonal interactions as possible. After all, 
Citizens cannot be trusted to arrive at their own mutually agreeable economic arrangements, right? Socialism drives all normal social and business interactions and negotiations towards becoming adversarial and confrontational. This is because a state machine, whose citizens are constantly at one another's necks, is a state machine that is always needed as a referee and as a peacemaker. And if you want to understand the basic principles of socialism, all you've got to do is take the mirror image of the basic principles of the Bible. And that's why my new program called Scrolling Through Scripture is so important. I'm doing it, and I decided to do it quite recently as I saw the direction in which things were going. And I realized that we all needed the ability to go back to source. We all needed to uh, bypass the middleman and see for ourselves what God actually said in that monumental volume called the Bible. And that's what I do, making accessible to everybody the secrets encoded within every Hebrew word and every Hebrew letter. And you will eventually find yourself beginning to identify certain Hebrew words and even Hebrew letters as we scroll through Scripture. That's right. Please go and read more about this. It's going to blow your mind. It really is extraordinary. I am. Uh, I don't know how 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 to tell you how strongly invested I am in the quality of this program, this Bible instruction course called Scrolling Through Scripture. Uh, read more about it if you would. Just head over to our special website for you and me. It's called wehappywarriors.com and uh, just read more about Scrolling Through Scripture. Uh, you will be as excited as I am. And uh, and people have already started it, and I'm getting letters from folks, many of them of which I try and answer. Uh, people who are doing that program obviously get priority, and I, I do respond, and everyone is excited. So uh, please join us. Wehappywarriors.com Socialism, I think most of you already know, has a natural lifespan of about three generations, say 75 years. Um, although the Soviet Union really came into being in 1922, the communist regime on which it was based started with the Russian Revolution in 1917 and ended with its dissolution, that dissolution of communism and the Soviet Union at the end of 1991, which was two years after the Berlin Wall came down. Um, the Soviet Union, the communist state, had lasted about 74 years. Cuba having gone communist in the early 60s, probably, I'd say, has another 10 or 15 years. What? What's the matter? What lasts forever? Pretty much nothing. So why would it surprise you that a type of social society, a specific form of social organization, has a typical lifespan? You ask about China? China's been communist for about 70 years already. But in China, other factors slightly complicate the timeline. I am planning to discuss it more fully at a separate time. The 75-year socialism lifespan is actually, interestingly enough, also seen in the Bible with Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 
chapter 25, verse 11. And also in the second book of Chronicles, 36, verse 21, addressing the 70 years that Nebuchadnezzar would rule Babylon, during which time his rule was based on socialism. Right? See the book of Daniel. Now, a non-socialistic empire, more of a free democracy, typically lasts, oh, about 250 years or 10 generations. As I explained in a uh, very widely heard podcast in the middle of July 2020, uh, it, was nigh, it was entitled America in Decline, Only Six More Years to the End. In that show, I explained why it takes about 10 generations and what banner each of those generational epochs typically waves. It is, of course, far easier to see the end of a socialistic regime coming in three generations and what banners each generation waves. We saw it in Russia and Poland and Hungary, and it'll be fascinating watching it happen soon in Cuba. The first generation are the true believers. They fought for socialism and not only believe in it, but because of how invested they are in it, they see no faults. And you know how you see a picture of three generations in a family, right? You know, grandpa, um, you know, might be, uh, um, you know, shall we say, uh, you know, 50 years old. His son might be 25 years old and his grandson just born. Uh, the baby in the picture. Yeah, uh, generations typically, 25 years these days is a good guess. And so uh, 10 of them makes 250 years, 10 because of the 10 generations between Adam and Noah. But that's a different story. For that, you want scrolling through Scripture. And uh, uh, that first generation of, of communists or socialists, right, they see no faults. Now, their children grow up in the homes of true believers and some follow their parents, while others tend towards stoically accepting the status quo and hoping for improvement. By the third generation, the natural rebelliousness of offspring, along with profound dissatisfaction with the failures and the shortages and the unhappiness and the widespread misery of socialism, well, um, that begins to lay the groundwork for overturning the regime. So why socialism lasts typically only about 75 years is because it takes about three generations, and it's because its fundamental beliefs are so remote from reality that its flaws and fractures overcome ideological zealotry and even fear of the regime. In only about three generations, it's faded away and they're ready to end it. But why do free democracies also fail? Remember, we've looked at this. Socialism is both a belief system and the natural economic system that that belief produces. It's a compact, all-in-one package that is, oh, so very appealing to a superficial glance. But a free democracy essentially has no underlying belief system other than, hey, everyone can do whatever they want. We're free. Obviously, within some undelineated time frame, whatever brought the people together into a society or a nation in the first place has dissipated and the group has become balkanized 
and flies apart into many mini-societies all at war with one another. One can see this at work right now, at the very time I'm preparing these words, while President-elect Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, figure out who to put in the administration's cabinet. No sooner had Biden nominated Hispanic Xavier Becerra as Secretary of Health and Human Services than Democratic Texas Congressman Vicente Gonzalez demanded at least five Latinos in cabinet-level positions. (laughs) Poor Joe. Um, Immediately, the Association of Asian American and Pacific Islanders, uh, yeah, that, that actually is a real thing, They complained that President Obama's cabinet had three Asian Americans and Biden's would surely offer no less. Originally, you see, Americans looked to government to deliver the best possible execution of uh, democratically decided policy. But now it has degenerated to become a way of apportioning power between competing racial gender, and class groups. We see it happening before our very eyes. Sometimes I wonder whether America as we know it even has another six years, as I questioned in my July 2020 podcast. American economist and former White House advisor Todd Buckholz, um, he wrote a book called The Price of Prosperity, Why Rich Nations Fail. And in it, he emphasizes the very obvious truth. This is how he puts it. Prosperity is not enough to hold a country together. We need culture, community, patriotism, and babies. (laughs) Um, Just remember those four things that Todd says a, a durable nation needs. Culture, community, patriotism, and babies. Well, yeah, The people of a durable society must have something in common, something they all believe in. Just believing in prosperity, which is to say capitalism, is clearly not enough. So let's call it culture and community. Nice words. But you know what? They are mere sentiments. They're not strategies. When you restate the problem, you haven't solved the problem. Yes, we all agree we do need culture and community. But what are they? And how do you inculcate them in a society? Yes, we do need patriotism. But again, if we cannot all agree on what America or any other country actually is, how can we possibly be unified by patriotism? Furthermore, and this is a big problem, if many citizens actually feel that America is a despicable country responsible for most of the evil and suffering in the world, then why on earth would any decent person be patriotic? So three of Todd's prescription sentiments can't work. That leaves babies. Again, yes, in an earlier podcast, I did speak a lot about the inescapable need for a population to be pyramid-shaped. Every successive generation must have more people than the previous one for it all to work. And I did explain in detail why this is. For now, however... It is sufficient for me to grant that if people stop having babies, that society is revealing early signs of incipient extinction. So what Todd does not do in his entertaining book 
is explain how you persuade people to, to bring more babies into the world. Let me tell you what this is like. Let me give you uh, an example. Imagine a nurse examining a patient presenting with signs of weakness, anemia, fatigue, listlessness, low blood pressure, and dehydration. The nurse says, okay, we're going to go through all your symptoms. What we need now is for you to start in gym exercises to regain your strength. We're going to give you iron tablets to deal with your anemia. We're going to now let you take a nap for two hours to get over your fatigue. We're going to give you some sugar water to combat your listlessness. And we'll prescribe some fludrocus cortisone to cure your low blood pressure. And then we'll put you on an IV to see if we can improve your dehydration. Well, all this is true for sure. But, and it's a big, boisterous, bold but, if the nurse only knew that the patient has neither eaten nor drank for over 30 hours, none of those treatments would be necessary. All just, just one really good meal with plenty of water to drink would quickly make every one of those symptoms vanish. There are many seemingly disconnected problems, but they would all be cured together with one good meal. You see the pattern? Similarly, yes, we do need culture, community, patriotism and babies. He's right. But tackling the lack of them as separate, disconnected symptoms of a diseased culture may be true, but not the best way of solving the problem. The nurse only needs to know that a society of faith combats those problems and solves them. That's right. Another word for culture is indeed faith. As the American-born British poet T.S. Eliot maintained, that the culture and faith of a people are intertwined. What we call culture is from the early word cult, meaning a religion, and that our culture is really nothing more than the outlook and worldview that people of a common belief system develop. Community? Sure. Nowhere do we find stronger communities than among faith groups. Whether you look at beautiful communities in Utah, unified by their common devotion to the Church of the Latter-day Saints, or beautiful communities built around a vibrant evangelical church, or an inspiring Catholic priest, or among Orthodox Jewish communities, where all are living within walking distance of the synagogue they attend on the Sabbath, on the Shabbat. The community closeness comes directly from the faith. And finally, sticking to Todd Buckholz's formulation, babies. I need hardly spend even 60 seconds on this. The only groups, pretty much, that have a fertility rate above replacement today, meaning a couple raising three children or more, are religious people. Yes, capitalism's very survival is utterly dependent upon Bible-based Judeo-Christian faith. In the strange and sometimes incomprehensible way that God has of running his world, just four months before Congress passed the Declaration of Independence in July of 1776, London printers by the name of William Strahan Thomas and Thomas Cadell released a 1,000-page big fat book entitled An Inquiry into the Nature and Causes of the Wealth of Nations. 
it immediately had tremendous global impact. The author was Dr. Adam Smith, a Bible-believing professor who taught religion at a university in Scotland. So while Bible-based Christianity was creating a nation on the North American continent, a largely Bible-based economic system was being formalized in Scotland. When I say Bible-based economic system, I don't mean with all the ritual accoutrements that God intended for the land of Israel, such as the seven-year sabbatical um, or for the land and the jubilee year and so on. What I mean, of course, are the astoundingly revolutionary ideas of tying virtue to economic interaction, providing for private ownership of property, free consensual trade. Hey, listen, listen to Adam Smith on that, by the way. It's so beautiful. By means of glasses, hot beds, and hot walls, by the way, he means heated glass houses, you know, like hot houses. Um, Adam Smith says, by means of glasses, hot beds, and hot walls, very good grapes can be raised in Scotland, but it would cost 30 times more to produce Scottish wine than to import wine from France. Would it be a reasonable law to prohibit the importation of all foreign wines merely to encourage the making of claret and burgundy in Scotland? What is prudence in the conduct of every private family can scarce be folly in that of a great kingdom. It's beautiful, isn't it? It's so simple. He argued for natural liberty, and he included the right to buy goods from anybody, including foreign products, without restraint, and also the right to be employed in whatever occupation anybody wants to be in, wherever anybody wants to live and work. I should tell you that in much of Europe through the 1700s, laborers had to obtain government permission to move from one town to another, even within the same country. By the way, that's just the same under socialism today, right? You live under socialism, you can't move from one town to another. Among other aspects of a Bible-inspired economy, Adam Smith emphasized specialization. Here is how he summarized his view. Revolutionary, by the way, throughout the world in the late 1700s, but quickly adopted by the Bible-believing founders of New England at the time. Every man, as long as he does not violate the laws of justice, is left perfectly free to pursue his own interest, his own way, and to bring both his industry and capital into competition with those of any other man or order of men. By the way, Adam Smith constantly invoked the Lord in his writings. He used names such as the author of nature, engineer with a capital E, great architect, capital letters, creator, the great judge of hearts, deity, the all-seeing judge of the world. I just mention all that because, again, uh, the person who came up with these vitally important principles of economics uh, was not an atheist professor of economics. He was a religious Christian. Bible-believing. Adam Smith famously wrote, and this is the phrase almost everyone hears, uh, but man has almost constant occasion for the help of his brethren, and it is in vain for him to expect it from their benevolence only. He will be more likely to prevail if he can interest their self-love in his favor and show them that it is for their own advantage to do for him 
what he requires of them. Give me that which I want, and you shall have this which you want, is the meaning of every such offer. It is not from the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer, or the baker that we expect our dinner, but from their regard to their own self-interest. We address ourselves not to their humanity, but to their self-love, and never talk to them of our own necessities, but only of their advantages. And here, what Adam Smith is saying is that you can only help yourself by helping others. The golden rule, straight out of the Bible. Businesses that focus on fulfilling the needs and desires of their customers will be the most profitable. Although capitalists are motivated by the desire for personal gain, the way that they maximize their profits is by focusing their everyday attention on meeting the needs of the public. Adam Smith was adopted by early America because they saw in Smith this idea captured by a contemporary scholar. This is what he wrote. Providence favors trade among peoples in order to promote universal brotherhood. Isn't that beautiful? This is all part of the Bible and of economics, and people understood it in early America. I've got to read that phrase one more time. Providence favors trade among peoples in order to promote universal brotherhood. That's right. You don't fight people you're trading with, do you? Because you need them because you produce certain things, they produce other things, you trade with each other, and you both have everything you want. You want them to survive and thrive. Yeah. Trading among all of God's children is exactly what God intended to promote universal brotherhood. Exactly. You do remember we earlier linked two of your Fs, your faith and your finances. It should now be clear why they go together. But just as Adam Smith who, uh, just again, just to place him, right, he wrote his book in 17, he published the book in 1776, he was born in 1723, and he died in 1790, so he lived for 14 years after the publication of his world-changing book. Uh, So, just as Adam Smith had enemies, so do you, right, socialists. They are trying to hurt everything you're trying to build. Karl Marx, and Karl Marx lived from 1818 to 1883. So Karl Marx was, what, about 100 years, roughly 100 years younger than uh, Adam Smith. Uh, Karl Marx broke the bonds of capitalism and tore apart the foundation of Adam Smith's system of natural liberty. No longer would people call the commercial system innocent and mutually beneficial and naturally harmonious. No, Under Marx, it was now depicted as alien, exploitative, destructive. In Marx's mind, emancipation came as people moved away from the Adam Smith model of capitalism. Truth is that in the name of human progress, Marx and his socialist disciples have probably caused more death, misery, degradation, and despair than anyone else. And remember, wherever you live, anywhere, and I I think of you listening, and I think of you in so many different countries, just heard today from a listener in Dubai, wherever you live, that threat is raising its head now more than probably at any other time in your living memory. In the United States, as well as in most of Western Europe, 
young people are turning to socialism as both a belief system and an economic system. It stands to reason that no mere economic system can stand up to a system that is both economic and belief. So trying to pit capitalism against socialism in a battle for people's souls is as unfair as pitting Joe Biden in a race against the winner of the 100 meters in London in the 2012 Olympics, the wonderful Jamaican Usain Bolt, who blasted through the tape in a blistering 9.6 seconds and immediately thanked God. Yes, Usain Bolt happens to be a devout Christian believer. That's another difference he has with Joe Biden, by the way. But back to the point. Joe Biden wouldn't stand a chance in a race with Usain Bolt, just as capitalism stands no chance against socialism. Look, an accountant cannot win the hearts of men better than a crusader can. Right? People do not follow number crunches, as important as they are. Movements are built on belief, not just on numbers. And a belief system plus an economic system that synchronizes with human nature always wins against socialism. The belief system that is not a belief system coupled with an economic system that violently contradicts human nature. Many people have said to me, well, Rabbi Lappin, that's all very well for you. You're a believer. And then they add plaintively, Oh, I do wish that I could be a believer too. It makes life so simple. Well, apart from the patronizing tone in which they suggest that when I was a child, my mother fed me those little faith tablets. So here I am, a believer. Automatically, a believer. Their ridiculous and ignorant notion that faith makes life simpler <laughs> is simply false. Atheism makes life simple. It comes with few real moral challenges and no requirements for any painful moral introspection in which most of us come up lamentably short. Back to Usain Bolt. It's like me saying, oh, I do wish I could be an athlete. Usain Bolt wasn't made an Olympic-level athlete because his father, who was a grocer, fed him running tablets. He worked at it. Those of us who do have a relationship with God or are trying to establish one or trying to improve our relationship with God, which is true for so many of us, we work at it. It doesn't come easy. It's not easy, nor is it simple. But it is worthwhile because it is one of those things that is counterintuitive. Yes, for healthy, wholesome, successful living, faith is actually necessary. It's a huge help. And in the same way that I think that I best serve you by helping you take the correct trajectory for finance and family matters, I'm also best serving you by recommending that you try and overcome any strong internal allergy towards faith in God. Note that I'm not preaching here. I'm not beating you over the head. I'm not saying you got to believe in God. I'm not saying any of that. All I'm saying is just remove your internal blockage and your own soul's natural need for your Father in heaven will simply manifest itself automatically by itself. Look, imagine, you know, here I am. Imagine I was not breathing. 
because of a temporary paralytic muscle spasm in my chest, okay? You'd not be trying to make me breathe. You know, of course, that if you removed the breathing obstacle of my chest muscle spasming, my natural breathing instinct would kick in again and take over and all would return to normal. You don't have to try and make me breathe. You just got to solve and take away what's stopping me from breathing. In the same way, for humans, the natural instinct for a connection with God is there. But with much of recent modern culture, we've been shamed out of it, indoctrinated out of it, and we unnaturally repress it. Look, I'm not insisting that without a God connection, you will fail any more than I'm saying that if you smoke four cigars a day, you'll live to a hundred, just like actor George Burns did. He was a nice Jewish man, really named Nathan Birenbaum. You might live to a hundred with a smoking habit, but we know that you vastly increase your chances without it. You well might enjoy success in family, finance, friendships, and fitness without faith. Sure you might, but you vastly increase the chances with faith. And just as in socialism, atheism goes hand in hand with a system that despises individual financial independence. So in faith, we have a system that goes hand in hand with personal financial achievement. You know how much easier it is to exercise regularly if you are part of a group that gets together at the gym or all meet up to run together? You're much more likely to succeed in the friendship and company of the like-minded, right? So naturally, it follows that the more people who end up seduced by socialism in your little world, the lonelier you're going to feel and the less motivated you are to succeed. Wherever you live, there are forces encouraging the spread of socialism. And I do not know of any way more effective at combating the spread of that fatal pandemic than living your five F's successfully. Just as nobody takes financial advice from a broke person and nobody takes marriage guidance from a many times divorced misogynist, the reverse is just as true. It follows that with your five F's in outstanding shape, you are perfectly positioned to be a powerful social influencer. Not only will your family success add to your financial success, and just as your fitness success will feed your friendship success, so your success in all these areas will strengthen the effectiveness of your words. Let me tell you a beautiful verse in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 24. Listen to this. The crown of the wise is their wealth. That's what King Solomon said in Proverbs. The crown of the wise is their wealth. It absolutely does not mean what that silly song in the old nostalgic and sentimental musical called Fiddler on the Roof said. If I was a rich man, that's how the words go. And then one of the stanzas in the song, If I was a rich man, it goes on, and it won't make one bit of difference if I answer right or wrong. When you're rich, they think you really know. You see, that wrongly suggests fakery. Foolish rich men are made to appear wise by their wealth. That may be what Tevye the milkman said in Fiddler on the Roof, but he's wrong. It's not what King Solomon says in Proverbs 14.24. Proverbs says... 
that wisdom produces wealth. Wisdom results in wealth, which then becomes the crown of the person. We don't respect a crown. The crown is merely a symbol for the respect we feel for the person under the crown. It's because she is the queen that she gets to wear the crown. It is because he is a wise man that he gets to wear the crown of wealth. There's another appalling mistake in that cleverly done but essentially silly song, and that is that no Jewish happy warrior, or for that matter any happy warrior of any background, would ever sing, If I Were a Rich Man. No, we all sing, When I Am a Rich Man. I'm doing all the right things. I'm avoiding the mistakes. It's not a question of if. It will happen. It's only a question of when. And these wonderful words and and so many others found in Scripture and encrypted in many cases into the Hebrew text buried there inside between the Hebrew letters and the words themselves are so many of these crucially important secrets to success. And I go through them in great detail, skipping very little in my brand new program called Scrolling Through Scripture. I've I've been talking about it a lot. I'm so excited about it. Um, It's a program that uh, many years ago when I planted a synagogue in California, uh, the entire congregation, and it grew dramatically, and it became very well known, um, Barbara Streisand um, chose this, my synagogue, for her son to be bar mitzvahed in. I'm, you know, I'm dubiously proud of that distinction uh, under the circumstances, but the point I'm making is that there's only one reason that congregation grew the way it did, My brilliance? (laughs) No, I don't think so. My charisma? My good looks? No, none of those things. It's because the foundational principle of that congregation was Bible study. And every night of the week from 7.30 to 9 p.m., I taught these principles. And from then to now, I've never made that material available again, till now. And that is the program Scrolling Through Scripture. So take a look at it, if you like, at uh, the special website for you and me called wehappywarriors.com. You got that? Write it down, wehappywarriors.com, and look for the program Scrolling Through Scripture. It's time to change and, and transform your destiny. It's time to really know exactly what God really said to humanity. And that's what we're doing in scrolling through Scripture. So the message to all happy warriors is please focus on your five Fs. Focus on your five Fs. It'll be good for you. It'll be good for the society in which you live. As a matter of fact, you can probably do no more good for your neighborhood and for your community than by putting your life on the five F. Renewal Express. And that's more than enough for this occasion. And so, my dear friends, I wish you a week 
of good times with your faith, with your family, with your friendships, your finances, and your fitness. Until next week, I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin saying, God bless.